You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Well, about um, in the beginning of January, uh, our leadership team started exploring uh, a partnership, and it was before that, but um, seriously exploring a partnership uh, between us and an organization, a network called Great Commission Collective. And uh, what Great Commission Collective does is it uh, strengthens leaders and plants churches. And at the core and the heart of FMCC, we are a church plant. We are a church plant of Summit Church. Um, and we have the blessing of actually having the director of GCC live in our area. So he, he lives here, uh, he and his wife, Kim. And uh, they have uh, just poured into my wife and I. We have spent time at their home. Uh, we've gone out to dinner. Um, and we uh, are so blessed by them uh, specifically. But then also the network. This network has uh, opened up relationships with other churches around Florida uh, and around the United States that, and even outside the United States, I mean, there were some from Canada and, and all over. And so um, we got to hang out with pastors that are um, wanting and desiring to be healthy leaders and that want and desire to plant healthy churches. And so uh, Dave is here uh, to share the gospel with us today. Um, there is a video that I want to show us because I do believe that this video gets at the heart and the core of why we as a church have joined this network. And so I think sometimes as you're sitting out there, you're like, well, what's a network? What does it do? Why are we a part of that? Um, this video is going to explain a little bit about that, and then Dave's going to come on up. So would you turn your attention to the screen? As we study the New Testament, we see that Paul would partner churches together in order to accomplish mission, in order to help strengthen churches, in order to care for leaders, and in order to ensure that leaders remained in ministry. Great Commission Collective exists to plant churches and, and strengthen leaders. Statistically, one in 10 pastors are gonna walk away from that role before their retirement. 42% of pastors are actually seriously considering leaving their church and going into the marketplace. The number one reason, they're very isolated and lonely. Isolation and lack of training and resources is a big deal and it can be very discouraging. So our desire is to come alongside them saying, you are not alone. Imagine doing life on your own or doing it with a bunch of people who are on the exact same mission as you are. The GCC, to me, is a family of churches where we can be united together toward the common calls. So when you can look around your city and go, oh, you're planting, you're planting, you're planting, let's get together. Let's actually take this whole city on for Jesus because we're standing shoulder to shoulder now and I'm not standing alone. Instrumental to making disciples in the Great Commission is going into all the nations. So we want to take that seriously. And that's why we want to invest not only locally in church planting, but we want to invest in going even to the hardest to reach places. So really it's that linking aspect as well, helping establish the networks and then linking the networks together so churches can serve churches in our mutual mission together. Our collective is uh, deeply committed to planting churches, but there's a whole other side of what we do that we see as essential to the effectiveness of church planting. We need to be giving ourselves not just to church planting, but to strengthening and nourishing leaders. We wanna like celebrate your retirement from your plants. And that means we're with you all of your life. That means we're with you on the whole entire journey. 
We're trying to invest time and money and energy and commitment into ensuring that a leader isn't simply planted, but there's ongoing coaching, ongoing care for that leader. And so there's a lot of resources that are developed that, that, that cross-pollinate well, because we're GCC churches. This is who we are. This is what we're about. Seminar leaders, conference leaders, how do we help each other and strengthen each other? There's just a ton of that. Don't think of it as just a learning cohort. We're giving you learning and knowledge, theology behind things, but also the practical application of things. It's really important to us to be able to help leaders drill down to the level of application and not simply know, but also learn how to do. As we have all been practitioners or are currently practitioners of church planting and strengthening leaders, we have a vast resource of not only resources from our learning center, but also men and women who have walked through crises themselves and are able to help you walk through it. Our heart is to be able to pour in to lead pastors and their wives and elders and their wives so that their marriages can be strengthened. We recognize that as that marriage goes, so goes their family. As that family goes, so goes you know, much of the church. And so by pouring into marriages, we pour into local churches. And we believe that it's healthy churches that plant healthy churches. So our desire really is to live up to our name, Great Commission Collective. It's not about our badge. The Lord's allowing us to work and He's using us, but I love the way that we are strategically moving towards kingdom. And how do we support and encourage one another? We wanna start where God has placed us locally, here, but we also want to make disciples. And it's not just making disciples in general, it's of all nations and peoples. What we're doing to help your church, you're going to be able to use to help another church. It's Ephesians, prepare people to do the work of ministry. We exist to help leaders finish well. In fact, we exist to help them start strong, but we also want to be there for the entire adventure, for, for the suffering, for the trials, for the dangers, toils, and snares. And, and to help each other finish well. It's not enough to start strong. We must finish well. Good morning. It's, it's such a joy for Kim and Jace and I to return to be with you this morning, uh, in part because of this partnership that we now officially share together, which means that you are now a vital part of that mission that I was just describing and we were just describing in the video, that mission to provide care and, and, and mission sharpness and an experience of family for leaders for churches around the world. And, you know, personally, as a guy who lives just over in Estero, I, I want you to know that this church is, is an answer to my prayers because, you know, we, we just hosted a cohort recently and, uh, of, of, of the pastors that are in GCC around Florida, and, and Bill and Lauren were part of that group, and, and uh, I, the, the evening we were together, I was just looking around, and I was kind of reflecting, and I, I, I just shared with them, you know, gathering GCC pastors and their wives from Florida uh, in our home 
has been a dream that I've had ever since we built that home five years ago because it, it represents an opportunity for us to bind ourselves together to think about how we can plant churches locally more strategically and throughout this state more strategically. And so that was just a wonderful moment and being here this morning is a wonderful moment and having my wife sitting in the front row is a wonderful moment. So I'm a very happy man right now. So. <laughs> You can open up your Bibles, please, <clears throat> to the last book in your Bible, which is Revelation, and turn to Revelation 5. And so Bill has invited me to do the first message in your series on Revelation. And so in Revelation 5, we are going to explore Christ's resurrection through the eyes and the experience of the Apostle John. So you might know something of the history here in the writing of this, this book, but it seems like John was banished to the Isle of Patmos, banished for preaching the gospel. And one day, around A.D. 95, somewhere in there, while John was worshiping on the Lord's day, the risen Christ appeared, and John collapsed, which, by the way, I think is a pretty rational response to seeing the resurrected Savior. And, and it is here that Christ gives him a revelation, thus the title of the book, Revelation, gives him a revelation of the present age and of the age to come. So keep in mind now as we approach Revelation that Revelation is not a, a literal report. It is, it's not some kind of futuristic newspaper that has traveled through time and been dropped on our doorstep. It's actually seven different sections, each of them describing the period between the two comings of Jesus Christ, a period which I believe Scripture calls the last Days, And each of these seven sections kind of running parallel to each other, and each one of them going a little deeper into the events of the last day. So Revelation is kind of like seven different cam camera angles shooting the same scene, but each one doing it from a different perspective. Now, in Revelation chapter 5, a most miraculous thing has taken place because John has been escorted into heaven after the crucifixion. And he has a front row seat on the heavenly side of the drama of redemption that has just played out. One commentator said, quote, John is summoned to the control room at Supreme Headquarters. And as we plug into verse, chapter 5, verse 1, this is what he sees. Then, beginning in verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he could open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. At the heart of Revelation chapter 5 lies a question. It is a question that's originally posed by this magnificent angel who actually proclaims it for all of heaven to hear. The question is, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to break the seals? Who is the champion who is actually greater than the angels? Who is the one who has earned the approval of heaven? Who is the conqueror who has vanquished all of his enemies? And all of heaven turns its collective gaze to the answer, and they find themselves staring at, now get ready for this, staring at, according to verse 6, 
a lamb. A lamb. Now, I want to get to the specifics of this chapter, but not before we fully comprehend the central character of this chapter. The central character actually is, is part of a plan that is, is contrary to everything we think about what it means to triumph, what it means to have power, what it means to have dominion, what it means to experience success, because the triumphant character of Revelation 5 is not, he's not a sports phenomenon, he's not a political superstar or a Hollywood icon. The central character is this lamb. I mean, we all know it's Jesus Christ, but portrayed as a lamb. Now, just for a second, let, let's, let's just savor the irony of this for a minute. I mean, you think about it. When nations want symbols of success and power, we come up with mighty beasts or birds of prey. You know, we, USA has our bald eagle and Russia the bear and Great Britain the lion. I mean, you're never going to hear a sports team named the lambs. Yeah? The fighting lambs. The, Thundering at the indomitable lambs. You know, you never hear that. There's nothing you can do to make that animal appear threatening. There's no swag that you can dress that animal up in to make it appear threatening. You could, you could tattoo a skull on the forehead of a lamb, and he's still going to look adorable. <laughs> in fact, the only defense mechanism for a lamb is to taste bad while it's being mauled. That's the only defense mechanism they have. So here's my point. There is no strength or glory in the life of a lamb. There's no strength, no glory in the life of a lamb. What kind of kingdom uses that as a glorious symbol of triumphant victory? So the answer to this central question of the chapter, who is worthy to open the scroll? scroll? Who is worthy to break its seals? The, the central question, answer to the question is that the lamb is worthy. And here's what we need to discover together this morning as we look deeper into Revelation 5 is he is worthy of what? What is he worthy of and why is he worthy? And that returns us to the beginning of Revelation chapter 5 because in the Father's right hand is a scroll. The contents of this scroll are so epic that the inability for the scroll to be opened reduces the apostle John to despair. Remember in verse 4? And I began to weep, not just weep, but weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. So what is this astounding piece of writing where written on both sides, sealed with seven seals, what is this thing where the mere thought of not being able to open it devastates the apostle? It makes him feel hopeless. It makes him feel desolate. It crushes him. What is this scroll? Well, it is, it is nothing less than God's redemptive plan. It's nothing less than the fullness of God's design. That's why it's written front and back. 
for judgment and blessing upon the world. It's, it's the blueprint for how God resolves the dilemma of reuniting sinful people with the holiness of God. It's the plan of salvation. And here's the problem. It's sealed. It's sealed. Bound. Cemented shut. Which means it's, it's barred from being executed. It's banned from all creation. And John sees this, and he comprehends this, and he gets the point of this, and John weeps. Because he longs for one worthy to approach the throne, to be able to break the seal, and to be able to execute the plan, but none are worthy. And it's almost like the scene of heaven freezes in that moment. Verse 3 and verse 4. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because, again, he says, no one was found worthy to open the scroll. It's like John is touching this desperate moment in time when all of eternity hung in the balance when it appeared like there were none that were qualified to open the scroll. Abraham couldn't help. Moses couldn't help. David couldn't help. The law, the prophets. Even Solomon, in all of his wisdom, could not help. Creation was cursed, and our condition had put us beyond the reach of any man to redeem us, and there was no man, no woman, that could open the scroll. And I think in, in part that moment being described there in verse 3 and verse 4 corresponds to that moment of indescribable darkness, those hours of indescribable darkness on Good Friday when the Father turns his face away from the Son. He who shared equality with God but did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself hung suspended on the cross, but was no longer worthy because our sins had been imputed to the righteous one. And when the Father saw and observed our sins upon the righteous one, he crushed him. The billows of his fury were poured out. God exploded with wrath upon his son with an anguish so acute that there is this cry of desperation, this cry of desolation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and John is seeing that. John is experiencing that. Here in verses 3 and 4, John touches the gloom of life outside of God, of a life stuck in sin, under judgment, and John despairs. For there appears to be no future, no plan, no vindication of God's holiness, no hope, no salvation, and only silence as the angel's question, who is worthy, echoes across heaven and remains unanswered. I remember a time in my life where, where I just began to realize that no matter how hard I tried, I could not be righteous. 
I kind of grew up in a church, attended regularly as a child, grew older, attended less, far less often, but I always believed in God. But I thought, you know, the vague kind of version of Christianity that I followed just, just meant that I needed to try harder and do better. I mean, that was basically a try harder, do better. But, but trying harder and doing better <clears throat> always seemed unreachable. And I began to realize that I was never going to be good enough for this God that demanded perfection. That on my best day, I would fall short of God's standard. I, I certainly couldn't break the seal. And, and it wasn't until college that I, I was told of the life and death that saw, of Christ that solves the biggest problem of creation, the biggest problem that I had in my life. And the biggest problem of creation is, is by the way, it's not global warming, it's not, it's not Russian aggression, it's not politicians or the policies they're creating, <clears throat> it's that as a human, I could never fulfill the demands of the law. As a human being, I could never live up to the law. And John saw the same thing. This is why John wept. This is why he wept. Because he saw it. Who in all the cosmos possesses the right qualifications to approach the throne of a holy God? Who in, in all of the cosmos can take the seal, can take the scroll and break the seals? Where is the one who fulfills the requirements of the law, who's equal in righteousness to God? Where is the one who is worthy by the blood he was shed, or is capable of fulfilling the plan that God has laid out? Where in all creation can that person be found who possesses those extraordinary credentials? And that's verses 1 through 4, which then delivers us to the Savior in verse 5. Because this is what John sees. One of the elders says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the earth. So this, this is where the vision takes this astounding turn and plunges us into the essence of history and into the trajectory of human destiny. Because there is this announcement that breaks forth in heaven. And, and it grabs John's attention by, by saying to John, weep no more. Weep no more. Because there is one who is worthy to open the scroll. There is one who is worthy to break the seals. There is one who has conquered sin and death. Goes on to describe how he was foretold in the Old Testament as the Lion of Judah and as the Root of David. He is Jesus Christ and he has come. And in verse 6, John snaps his head around, prepared because of what the elders said 
to see this lion of Judah. He, he, he prepares to behold this great conquering lion who's going to devour all of his enemies and take the kingdom by force. And what does he see? He sees the lamb. And then with these few words behind it, as though it had been slain. The lamb, as though it had been slain. Now get this, standing. The lamb, had been, as though he had been slain, standing. He's not dead, he's standing. He's not fallen, he's standing. He's not defeated, he's standing. He is alive, he is risen, he is conquered. He stands, seven horns, which is just a way to say perfection in power, that number seven, perfection. Seven eyes, perfection in knowledge. And therefore, he and he alone is qualified to approach the Father and to take the scroll. And so here, we're kind of, we're kind of coming into the very center of all of the book of Revelation. Because what's taking place here echoes the, the central motif of the whole of Revelation, and that is that the Lamb has conquered death, so the Lamb is worthy. The Lamb is worthy. I brought a quote with me by Graham Goldsworthy, biblical theologian, who says, quote, by a skillful use of apocalyptic images, John illuminates the central paradox of the gospel. The victory of God was the humiliation and death of his son. The lion assumes the meekness of the lamb and dies in order to overcome. And John sees that. And John understands that. And he comprehends that. He understands the plan has worked. The lamb, though he was slain, he stands. The plan has worked. The tomb is empty. The Savior is raised. The resurrection succeeded. I mean, last week, you know, when we celebrated Easter, what we need to understand is that John saw the very thing about Easter that for us, it's so easy to miss. And that is that the worthiness of the lamb answers the problem of our unworthiness. See, one of the, you've probably noticed this as well. It's not just me. I, I, I know we've all been there. The, the irony of becoming a believer in Jesus Christ is that we actually become more perceptive to the depth of our sin. Which is, which is why as Paul got older as a believer, he's eventually making statements like, I, I'm the worst of sinners. Why Paul tells the, the Romans that I, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there. And he's talking about that as a believer. See, as an unbeliever, we're not only ambivalent about that law that's at work, but, but we feel from day to day, yeah, we're, you know, we're kind of bad, but we're probably good enough to have a relationship with God. We're probably good enough to get into heaven. Not long ago, I, I read an article in <clears throat> the USA Today, or USA Today, titled, this was the title, 
to, to hell with sin when good is enough. To hell with sin when good is enough. And, and I read through it and I realized, you know, this article kind of captures the assumptions and the value system of the modern mind, which is basically, yeah, I've got some weaknesses, I've got some challenges, I've got some problems, but I'm good enough for God. Because I know I'm better than some, I know I'm not as good as others, but I'm better than some, but I'm good enough to spend eternity kind of chilling with God. And I think God understands that and he kind of gets me in that. You see, John wept because we're not good enough. John wept because there were none who could approach the throne of a holy God. There were none who could break the seal. See, the original question frames life's biggest problem. It frames out our biggest problem, which is who is worthy? The answer to that question is none. None. None of us are worthy. There's, there's none who are righteous, it says in Romans. No, not one. Not one. I mean, you, you may have a good day. I may have a good day. But, but, but the standard for the seal breaker was perfection. That was the standard for the seal breaker, perfection. And we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we need, to, we need another to go in our place. We need a substitute to go in our place. We need this Lamb of God. And see, what ha what's happening here in verse 5 and, and, and following is that heaven now gets it. Heaven understands the significance of the moment. They, they comprehend the meaning of this epic past that takes place in verse 7, where the son, the lamb, takes the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. They understand that this was an epic pass that was received by the, by the son. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to me, for me to be from Philadelphia and hear the words or mention the words epic pass without thinking of the 52nd Super Bowl, which was in 2018, where the Eagles quarterback, Nick Foles, oh, second string quarterback, Nick Foles, led the Eagles into an unexpected upset over who? Yeah, New England Patriots. And so there's this one pivotal moment, like near the end, where they, they had a special play. They called it the Philly Special. And the running back, guy named Corey Clement, he, he kind of he takes the snap. And then Nick Foles, second string quarterback Nick Foles, circles out around, and the running back throws the pass to the quarterback who, who crosses the line. And, 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 the, and Philly upsets New England. And and, and the pass is completed. And then the pass, it's all about the pass. In the weeks to come is the pass. The passes splash over all the airways. Social media explodes over the pass. There's pandemonium in Philadelphia over this pass. Why? Because a historic pass was made under indescribable pressure to help to lock down a victory. See, what Revelation 5 is doing is Revelation 5 is taking us to the ultimate game with a far more historic pass where the Father, in verse 7, passes the scroll 
to the Lamb. You know why? Because the Father's wrath is appeased. Because the Lamb's sacrifice was sufficient. Because his people are now redeemed. Because their future is secured. Because the crucified Lamb won eternal life for his people. He, he took the punishment that we deserve. He rose from the grave and he gave us a place earned, not through our obedience, not through our perfect life, but through his obedience and his perfect life. Basically, the message of Romans chapter 5, verse 7 is the past worked, the play worked, the seals were broken, the plan was executed, it worked. And, and, and if, if you're having a difficult time this morning understanding like how to respond to all of that. Let's just for a second study heaven's response to all of this. Because in the moment of that pass from the Father to the Son, all of heaven comprehends the significance of this transfer. And an explosion of praise breaks up. An explosion of praise such that it would make all of the bombs ever detonated in the history of the world sound like a pin drop breaks out in heaven. And this is the focus of their song, beginning in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll Worthy are you to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then John says, and I looked, and I heard around the throne. Now everybody's getting in on it, the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice basically the same thing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and to the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then the four living creatures punctuated all by saying amen and the elders fall down and worship. <clears throat> and so there is this, this crescendo of praise that's moving outwards in concentric circles. It starts in verse 8 with the elders, and then, and then the four living creatures get in on it in verse 11, and then the voice of many angels are in on it as well, and then finally there's this climax in verse 13 where every creature on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they're all united in worship. Why? Because the scroll pass has been complete. The Lamb has risen. His work is accepted. His work is completed. And those the Lamb has purchased, and this is important, those the Lamb has purchased will finish the race. Those the Lamb has purchased will finish the race. And that wraps up the end of time with all of them together worshiping the Lord. See, Revelation 5 kind of starts with the darkness of life before the resurrection, and it wraps up with the end of time where all of God's people, black people, white people, 
uh, you know, Asian, African, Latino, united in their adoration of the Lamb before the throne. And if you are sitting here this morning and you have trusted in the Lamb's death as the only way to the throne, listen, you're in that group. That's your future. That's what you can look forward to. See, for Christians, Revelation 5 is like, is like God showing us our, our graduation picture. You know, it's kind of like we get, we get a chance to see it ahead. I remember in my high school growing up, there were cases in the hallway and then pictures of classes from the past. I'm going back 10, 20 years. And, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd scan the faces from years past. And you say, I wonder... I wonder where they are. I wonder where they've gone. I wonder if they're, they're still alive. See, what, what's happening here is Revelation 5 is like God showing us our graduation picture and, or, or his graduation, the graduation picture of humanity, and you're in it. We're done, and, and your picture's in it. Your face is in the picture. You have finished the race. You're in the class because after the race is run, after the suffering is over, after sin is gone and it's all forgotten, we're all celebrating and we're all reminding each other and echoing what's being said through he heaven, echoing the very thing that John remembered in that first moment, and that is the lamb is worthy. Listen, I guess I really only have um, three words that I can summarize this whole message. Really just one thing to say this morning, and that is, the lamb is worthy. The lamb is worthy. There's only one thing that really needs to fill our mind this morning, and that is, the lamb is worthy. If you're tired this morning, God wants to remind you of something. The lamb is worthy. If you're suffering, if you're depressed, if your kids are misbehaving, if you have a loved one who's going sideways or, or a loved one who's dying, listen, this is important to recognize. The lamb, the lamb is worthy. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel unworthy. But that's not the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is that the lamb is worthy. And, and he can take the shame you feel and the shame that you've received, and he can turn it around because his worthiness overwrites your shame. Have, have you done anything unworthy this past week? Well, good news is the lamb is worthy. The lamb is worthy to, to replace what you've done with the obedience that he purchased while he lived the perfect life, obeying God's law in all things at all times, so that when, when Christ dies on the cross, that perfect life of obedience is assigned to us, it's transferred to us, it's imputed to us, so that when God looks at us, he no longer sees us in all of our fallenness and faults and foibles and flaws, and, and he no longer sees us in our sins and our lusts and our lies. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ dripping off of you, which elicits his love and mercy and kindness and, and moving toward you because he sees his son and he forgives us. So listen, do you, do, do you feel unworthy this morning to, to identify with Christ, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to realize the lamb is worthy because the lamb is worthy, he, he identifies with you, whether you identify with him or not.
Do you feel unworthy to finish the race? Again, that's not the most important thing about us. The lamb's worthy. The lamb took the scroll. The lamb opened the scroll. The lamb executed the scroll. The lamb is worthy. See, we don't need to weep like John wept. We can look to the lamb because the lamb, the lamb is worthy. Actually, this is the point of all of history. The lamb is worthy. Are you here this morning as a theologian and you want to you hear a summary of all of the end time studies and all of the different positions? This is it in a few words. The lamb is worthy. Yeah. Do you want to get to the heart over the next few weeks of the, of the mysteries of the book of Revelation? This is it. The lamb is worthy. That's the real point of last week at Easter. That's the real point of the resurrection. That's the real point of our lives. That's the real point of this book. The lamb is worthy. See, the angel, the angel proclaimed the right question in Revelation 5. The question was, who is worthy to open the scrolls? Who is worthy to break the seals? And, and the answer to that question fills this season and should fill our heart with its true meaning and significance. And it is that the lamb is worthy. And here's what I want to remind you of, because I was talking earlier about growing up in the church. I grew up in a Presbyterian church. And we would sing that well-known hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Do you remember that? Crown Him with Many Crowns. This is how it goes. The lamb upon the throne. Hark, how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing. Of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king for all eternity. The lamb, the lamb is worthy. He broke the seal. He's the matchless king. He sits on the throne. So maybe the question that you need to answer this morning is, is he worthy to be your king? Because if you have never, to use the words of the song, crowned him with many crowns, if, you've, if you never recognize that he sits on the throne, I want to encourage you, use the intrigue, the curiosity that you feel in this very moment to talk to the person that brought you, to, to talk to one of the leaders or talk to me. I'd be happy to hang around and talk to you because we would love to make this, to help you make this day what is for us as we remember the most memorable day of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy, and we want to thank you for this study of Revelation that brings that before us and and reminds us that we might fix you at the center, that we might weep no more, that we might have perspective, that we might remind ourselves, that we might worship you, which seems to be the only appropriate response to the reminder that the Lamb is worthy. In Jesus' name we pray.